I mean, do you feel confident about your local recording? Yes, I have Audacity going, um, watching the waveform. It's like negative 18 to negative 12 okay. decibels. It's looking good. Sweet. Mm-hmm. It's like you've done this before. Yeah, I, I actually uh, helped produce a podcast about mental health. Oh, uh, there's cool. A psych- yeah, there's a psychotherapist um, who has been doing a podcast like maybe like once a month. But I go and, yeah, take take the audio recording she sends me and run it through a compressor and do little micro edits and then add music. I even produced the music for it. Oh, wow. It's called awesome. Emotional. Yeah, it's called Emotional Warrior Radio. Um, the the lady I work with is uh, Bianca Grace. She's she's a gem. So that's my way of giving back to the community, mental health community, basically. Right, yeah. if, if you just hear a crash and I go silence because I have passed out from the heat, it is... 90 plus here right now and we don't have air conditioning and it's a 200 year old house netherlands and we live in a 200 year old house that was designed to retain heat because it's a cold it's very north so how is it 90 some degrees there i don't know it's i mean the the, everything is shut down they've because nobody has air conditioning so I mean, the, it couldn't be anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic climate change. That that could not possibly. That no, there's no. That's oh, absolutely uh, not. Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink, and I'm Jack Neely. This week we have a special guest, Amin Astani. This week we're talking about Amin's DevOps and SRE journey. Amin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, gents. It's uh, awesome to be here. So yeah, I, I'm Amin. I uh, run a consultancy called Chertomoto. Uh, where I help tech companies transform their reliability posture using DevOps and SRE best practices. Uh, I've been leading transformation since 2016, and now I'm sharing my experience with other tech companies. Good to be on. So the various hosts here have some experience with all of these topics, but I'm really curious to know what your particular journey was, because we all have a different entry point to this and sort of what got you into this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the beginning of the beginning, uh, I was in in high school and my girlfriend's mom uh, introduced me to Red Hat Linux. She was running KDE on her machine and she was SSHing into some mainframe somewhere for a class she was taking in community college. And I was like, this isn't Mac. This isn't Windows. What is this? <laughs> and she she kind of gave me the, 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 the pitch about free software and I, I fell in love since. Um, but in terms of where I started my DevOps journey, really, I my first big job was working at a company called Acquia. Um, and the, they are a company that provides support, uh, professional services and hosting for Drupal, which is an open source CMS. Uh, I was in operations, so I was responsible for the provisioning, monitoring, and incident response uh, for customer infra. And as the company grew and as the number of customers grew, so did the manual effort required to keep all the customers up. And that got me thinking about, hey, is this the right way of doing things? And uh, I ended up going to a DevOps Days uh, conference, I think in 2015 in Boston. And that opened my eyes to, hey, I really need to be paying attention to how work is being done and, and how I should start thinking about changing it. Yeah, there's a force multiplier that comes along with the modern tooling that lets the operation stuff scale so much better. And 
that first time when you find that, it's really eye-opening and it's a lot of fun. Oh, uh, absolutely. The the funny bit is that we were already, you know, benefiting from a lot of, of tools. I mean, at the time we were using Puppet for configuration management. We had a, a pretty interesting um, API and uh, CLI tool set to stand up and tear down customers. But as the number of customers increased, you know, those tools that we were using for heavy lifting wasn't really you know, useful for the scale that we were at. So there was a lot of like shell scripting wrappers that, that happened around the tools that the, the engineering team provided for us. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was a struggle during like the 2014, 2015 time. Absolutely. One of those things that I have loved about the transition from kind of the old ways of doing things is I'm, I'm old as listeners know. And I started when it was individual people like sticking CDs into the front of machines to install them before we got to, no, let's actually set up a real PXE, a PXE environment to actually do this, automate the installs and whatever. Yeah. Because it was three or four guys running 10 or 15 servers and every server was custom configured by hand and everything was kind of done by the way that way. And <laughs> I mean, it worked when you only have that many servers, but as soon as you start scaling up, it was hugely painful. And like when we found Puppet, it was like, oh my, this is, this is oh. going to change our life. And it did. And then the next group was. I think everybody our age has that, has that moment when Puppet or Chef, the first time they played with it and said, my life just changed. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I definitely remember that moment. Um, I was working at my alma mater running a supercomputing center. Um, and we got you know, a cluster, a cluster of like 120 servers. Um, and prior to using puppet, we were just using kickstart and like writing dirty oh, bash God. into the kickstart to get everything going. But like the moment that we migrated to puppet, yeah, it, w- it was a paradigm shift. It, w- it was a massive paradigm shift, just like, you know, uh, uh, the use of AWS and cloud computing was a paradigm shift because we didn't have to wait for some IT department or some other team to procure you know, the equipment, like we could conjure up compute at any time. But yeah, I remember that moment for sure. Several jobs ago, and I'm not going to name names because I'm not that rude, but we were using a managed um, hardware provider. And you'd say, okay, I need, you know, 500 machines. And they'd say, great, it'll be three months or six months. Right. Or sorry, the data center's full. You can have one in a different region. And we're like, but I wanted to grow the current thing. Like, hey, sorry, can't. And the move to the actual cloud and not hardware, like not, you know, renting somebody's physical hardware was so transformative. I mean, it's expensive, but it frees you from so much stuff so quickly. It just, it, it changes the game. Yeah. I mean, 100%. At Acquia, we started um, AWS 100% from day one. Uh, so luckily, luckily we, we didn't have to deal with the hardware procurement problem. Um the, the 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 thing we did have to deal with though was that we made an interesting architectural decision where we were allocating VMs and we were giving them names. And then we were associating them together to compose a customer's stack, which okay, great, it's done it's being done programmatically, it's being scripted, but those one-to-one mappings from host to host, like this is database, this is file system, this is web, this is um, 
you know, like a load balancer, it, it starts to show its, its, uh, its limitations very, very quickly when you need to do, um, any form of fleet management, you know, patching, uh, host reboots, you can't really drain equipment. You can't do a B you can't do any of that stuff. It's like, yeah, you took the primary database down you're going to fail over. Um, so I think that was like the primary gap in our architecture at the time. And this is pre Kubernetes. This is pre containerization. I mean, we were, we, we put this thing together using EC2, S3, EBS, and a dream. Um, cause that's what we had at the time. The company started in 08. I joined, um, in late 2010. Yeah. That, that sounds about right in terms of the time frame. And yeah. it was better than everything that came before, but looking back on it, it's like, that was the stone age. It's like, oh, <laughs> oh yeah. It's like banging rocks together, uh, and we were we were treating uh, inadvertently, of course. I think I think we did a really good job architecting the system with the tools that we had, but what we didn't realize at the time um, is that we made a whole bunch of pets in the cloud. We gave them all names, you know. I, yeah. I'm dealing with the end of a cloud migration that was effectively a lift and shift, and we're in the cloud. We turned off the last bare metal. Right. But it's still done as if they had been in bare metal. And that that brain shift, that you've got to think different because your building blocks are different now. Um, actually, one of, one of my coworkers who's like myself as an adult Lego person um, said, now we have to think about it's a different set of blocks that get put in the box to build from. And I thought that was very appropriate, if not juvenile kid toys. But it's, it is. You have to, you know, your your pieces are different now. And getting your brain shifted to thinking that way that I'm using this, this, and this, as opposed to standing up a VM. Some of the hardest stuff with this. Oh, yeah. Makes perfect sense. So after you left... Um... Aquia. Aquia. Sorry. That... So after you left Aquia, where did you go from there? I went to Meta at the time. It was known as Facebook. The Book of Faces. I, uh, the Book of Faces, yes. I, I, I joined as a production engineer. When I left Acquia, I was actually a SRE manager. And as part of me being recruited, they recommended that I join as an IC and uh, build credibility, understand the technology, and then transition back into management later, which is what I did. But yeah, meta, three years. Nice. I imagine that was very, very different from previous environments. Oh, very. Um I even did a public talk about it uh, for them, which was like, I, I joined a DevOps Shangri-La, as I called it. And the reason why I said that is, so when you're working for a smaller company and let's say, okay, uh, I'm, I'm building a service and I'm launching it. Okay, you have to think about the observability, your change management. What are, you, what are your CI, CD tools? How are you securing the, the stuff? And you're doing that by yourself. But when you're at Meta, it's like, Hi, I am the container orchestration service and I am staffed by 20 people. And if you have any questions, you can go to this group and you can ask you can ask us stuff and we'll reply. And we'll even give you an SLA and when we reply. So you, you benefit by a, a whole panoply of tools out there that in smaller organizations, you just don't have access mm-hmm. to. Like one of the largest CICD um, systems on the planet is running in Meta right now and has an engineering team responsible for operating it they have slos for it and yeah you don't have to stand up your own anything they they made it to the point where you just write your code and 
if you're using their services, like you write your code, just, you stay on the paved road. That, that is works. the mantra. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they built. That's what they built. Um, which is pretty fantastic for, uh, for an engineer, you know, just, just joining the company. Of course, it does require a lot of onboarding. I mean, it took me six weeks. Uh, there's like something called bootcamp where you, you, you go and you take classes on how to like use all of the tech. So by the time you join a team, you understand like, okay, this is how I deploy an application. This is, this is, you know, I got, I, I have the ropes. Um, <laughs> I think ropes the interesting course, Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is like a ropes course, hundred percent. I think. I think the thing that's actually kind of funny is that it's not about you, you know, building the infrastructure when you're when you know anymore when you're you know creating a new service or product. It's sometimes educating the engineering team that hey, these tools exist. We don't have to do it the hard way. There is a team responsible for running this for you. Let them help you. Let you know you adopt this new thing. I work at a very large technology company and I will leave, leave that there, but I have a similar environment where there are teams of people writing dozens of tools. And sometimes the trouble is finding the tool, not knowing if there's like, I know there's a tool that does this. I just need to find which of the four or six or 12 of the tools is currently supported and actually running and actually is what I want it to. And Ken's on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. <laughs> I was about to say something like, yeah. like Ken is the dedicated team for everything. Well, not, not <laughs> right. Pretty much. My, my entire company is smaller than some of your teams. Yeah. Right. It's a totally different, it's a totally different thing. Like um, now being in a company of one, um, you know, it, it gives me total control over the tools that I want to use for, for yeah. any given project. Uh, you have all of this freedom um yep. but of course now your your cognitive load is spread across all of these operational uh, responsibilities yeah like you're on you are on your own you're free but you're on your own man yeah. like you have to figure it all out so you're doing consulting work now which means you're helping other people sort of understand this transition and understand how to properly leverage tools and how to kind of get the best return on their investment for time people technology money whatever most people look up to Meta or Google or, I don't know, Tesla or Uber and all these huge projects they've built and all these, these crazy technologies. And they're like, oh, well, well, Google has a monorepo, so we should have a monorepo. Um, how do you help people who are aspiring to things that are to, to solutions that are way too complex for their problem? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I mean, I think the way that I tend to reason about things with people is being able to understand like the time and money cost of any decision that is made. Like, sure, you could move to a monorepo, but you know, what is what is the capital investment on making that move? And how much time are you saving, you know, the engineering <laughs> team in terms of doing it? Like it really it the calculus is always those two things. It's always operational yeah. expense. Right. And it's always revenue. Like if you're making this decision, what is going to be the impact? I mean, one of the big one of the big mantras from from Meta that I still carry forward with me um, is is the term focus on impact. So like any project that you do, you need to be able to justify to another person that if we do this and we apply this investment of time and possibly infrastructure that we're going to get this return. So, I mean, luckily, I, I haven't. I haven't worked with too many clients where they're like, yeah, let's, let's do this big 
you know, paradigm shift. It's usually me pushing them in that direction. Um, but for any, any decision where change is needed, like it, you need to be able to back it up with time and money. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I hear so many people talk about like, Oh, well they're doing it. So we should do it. And I'm like, but it, if it doesn't work for you, why? I don't. Everyone is not a Google sized company. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of worried about this in the industry, to be honest, I'm not going to stand on the, on the soapbox for too long, but I, I feel that organizations are kind of cargo culting a bit where they read something on Hacker News and they're thinking, oh, if I do this, you know, it's going to make me look good. They're not, again, they're, they're, their eyes are off the ball in terms of what the impact is. Like, I don't care. As a consultant, you know, I want, I want to be able to, like, get maximum business value out of the time that I am working with you. I, I couldn't care about what technology is used as long as it, you know, does the job. So... But I, I think There's I think the difference in terms of, between running yeah. a consultancy shop and resume-driven development. <laughs> Bingo! <laughs> Bingo! Yeah, and and I mean, as a, as, a, as a brief segue in a, in, a, in a previous job, I'm not going to say who for a cl- for a client of theirs, which I'm not going to mention. Uh, there was a, an engineering team that was building a web app, and um, they decided to use a certain NoSQL <clears throat> database uh, as part of the architecture because they frankly wanted on the resume they wanted to have the experience using this particular no architecture within six months it was it was moved to my sequel was it web scale um, you know you know it could be <laughs> it could be <laughs> that video will last forever for me anyway um extra normal yeah i know exactly what you're talking about and i'll, I'll throw it in the show notes as usual um so people who are listening along can find it if they don't know the web's find that particular in joke yeah DevNull is fast as hell. <laughs> yes, it is. Or that lossy compress- compression algorithm, RM. Right. Let's see. RM star. Mm-hmm. Us Greybeards, we had the bastard operator from hell doing all that stuff before y'all were born. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've read those. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't seen one in the flesh unless, <laughs> unless I'm the person. Maybe I'm the BOFH. I was, I was a pretty <laughs> grumpy admin in my, in my Acquia days, to be, to be honest. Well, I started before Linux existed and... We've everybody had been known to to free up space for somebody by just nuking their shit. But fair enough. You know when hard drives were what? Yeah, exactly. I don't have enough space. Boom. Oh, thanks. I haven't. Hey, where's my stuff? I was working on that. So, I mean, you spun up your own consulting firm. Uh, Tell us a little bit about um, the experience of making your own business and spinning up your own consulting firm. And kind of what you like to do a little bit. Yeah, what a what an amazing question. There's a lot to say. So there's aspects of starting it that are really exciting and really fun. And then there's aspects about it that is very challenging and very difficult and is requiring a lot of personal growth on my part. So, I mean, if you want to start up a business, at least in Massachusetts, you go and you, you know, fill out a, a form on the on the mass.gov website to register an LLC, right? And then you and then you spend a little bit of time figuring out what domain you want to register um, for your website, and then you. That's you all do there that. is to it, right? I mean, then you also need to find like an address uh, that you want to register your company under, which it, whether it be like your home address or you know a business address that you go and lease. Uh, but like really, to start up an LLC, it doesn't take a whole lot. However, just because you have an LLC doesn't mean you're going to get customers right off the bat, um, and that is where the real growth is done. So. 
uh, after launching my site, and I built it myself using Jekyll. It's purely static. Um, it loads really, really fast, and it has you know pretty CSS and stuff. Um, so I think it, it's 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 acceptable for people w- wanting to go look at it and check out my my uh, my services. It's, it's actually quite nice. Uh, but I I market a lot. I think probably forty to sixty percent of my time every week is just marketing. So I am writing a post to the blog, which I now cross post to Substack. Uh, I'm going to meetups as often as I can. Um, and actually a couple weeks ago, I, I did a, a talk, uh, for Boston DevOps talking about SRE, just the, the, the basics around what it is, where it came from, everything like that. Um, but then I'm also doing cold emails, um, and, and trying to, you know, reach out to companies that I think would benefit from, from my uh, presence and services. And yeah, that, that work is, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's, it's tough and it's difficult, but you know, it's a numbers game. Like, um, one of my mentors basically said, you know, for one, every 100 people that you contact, 10 are going to be interested in one, you're going to get a deal out of. Um, so yeah, most of my time is doing that. Now, when you do have an engagement, it is a lot of fun. And, um, one of the reasons why is that you have to think about the relationship dynamic between a company and an employee and a company and a consultant. When you're a consultant, um, they want you to tell them the bad news. They want <laughs> you to be honest. Um, there, there's no happy talk. There's no like persona that you have to maintain in order to maintain you know, the relationship with your colleagues. It's like you can come in and say a spade is a spade. Here are the issues that I see. Here are the risks that they that they have, and here are the things that I recommend we do to go do it. Um, and in addition to that, there are some like actual tactical projects that I've done, not just consulting, where you know they they're wanting me to, um, for example, help them interview a candidate because they need help interviewing. So I used um, my experience as a hiring manager and put together some interview questions and ran several candidates through and said, I like this person. And, you know, but it, it, it's cool because I guess to sum up, I think it's, it's cool being a consultant because you have this very broad palette uh, of things to, to, to do and to even try. Whereas at a company, your scope is very narrow. You're asked to do a very specific set of things, but as a consultant, you can, you know, it's a pretty broad horizon in terms of the types of activities you can take on. And I find that very exciting because like as a lifelong learner, like I want to, I want to be a lifelong learner. I uh, have the opportunity to learn new things all the time. I think one of the things a lot of folks don't, don't take away properly is the larger a company you work for, the more narrowly focused you are going to be. And that is just an absolute truth because if you're at a, at a 15 person technology company, you're going to be configuring, you know, LDAP servers and, like making sure that the guest book crap is working and all the other things, because you have to put on all the hats. When you're at a hundred thousand person company, you're going to work on a team of people who are all doing the same thing as you, because you need four or five database engineers who are focused on this particular sharding problem or whatever it is. So you get pigeonholed into very tight roles. So a lot of people are like, Oh, I really want to go work for one of the massive super companies because you get paid really well and all these things, but there's a trade-off. And just say no. There, there is there is a trade off. Like, sure, you get you get you get to work for a place that has a lot of smart people around you. I've learned a lot when I was at Meta, no doubt. 
Um, but absolutely, like what you just said completely resonates with me. Like I felt that the cultural tension between how I operate as a professional and, you know, the role that I am assuming, like I am rank XYZ and team X. And there were a lot of moments where the most important thing that I was doing for the team didn't fall inside of that compartmentalized job description. And that actually, it made, it made, it made for very interesting conversations um, when it came to assessing my performance, for example. Um, so yeah, that, that is definitely a, a thing to look out for when you're joining a larger company is that, you know, your entrepreneurial spirit and you being a generalist and hopping from thing to thing and using different tools that doesn't work super well. This is all the reasons that I am, that I am at a small, I have done the large megacorp and it changed. I have decided I'm not, but it's, that's a personal choice. And yeah, you got to be aware of yourself. I mean, self-awareness is a thing. And if you want to be true to you and you want to be happiest, you got to pick the right place. You will be happy, but you'll also be more productive. It's in everybody's favor to be aware of what you're going to excel at. But also, in the same sense, sometimes it's good to go do the other. Cause- yeah, absolutely. I, I I think I think in both companies I was at, you know, Acquia, I started as employee number 73, right? So there was a lot of capabilities that I had to invent along the way. Um, that that That's exciting, but also very stressful because there's a lot more responsibility placed on one individual, um, right? When I was at a much larger company, uh, yeah, again, like you have access to all these smart people, you have all the tools provided to you, but then, right, you no longer have that, that range of motion, that freedom to make change happen. So you mentioned that you were an engineering manager over SRE teams or over a team of SREs or something um, along those lines. How did that shift help um, with your perspective on the consulting business and with your career? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely answer that question. It's a very interesting one. So when I was at Acquia, I started a site reliability engineering practice and um, I hired for, you know, additional headcount and also transitioned engineers that were formerly on the operations team that I once served on and helped lead over to this group. Um, I think how that process prepared me for what I'm doing now is, well, um, the engagement model. So what I mean by an engagement model is that, okay, SRE can be interpreted in various different ways in terms of how you interact with engineering teams. So the classic Google model is you build a team. That team takes over most, if not all, the responsibility from another engineering team. They're taking care of the operational responsibilities. They're patching issues, and they're leaving SWE to build more features. Now, not every team can do that. So what I did is I had, I was basically operating a consultancy inside the company. I was embedding engineers on software engineering teams, you know, with the mandate of, okay, figure out what's going on on this team, assess, you know, their operational like maturity and let's get, you know, service level objectives on the board. Let's get observability going. If we don't have it already, let's do blameless postmortems. Um, so like that type of way of interacting with engineering teams, uh, I think very much prepared me for what I'm doing now because, uh, 
I think the shape of it just looked a lot like a consultancy. If I had staff, it would be the same, you know, situation. It would just be for billable hours rather than just like lending, you know, an engineer into a team internally. How did you walk the divide between the embedded engineer for your SREs and the the sort of core internal SRE reliability work that your team did? Oh, how did I make that transition between between the one and the other? Well, I'm most of my experience is that there's a part of the SRE team that gets embedded and a part of the SRE team that runs uh, some core services, does some core reliability work. Yeah. And finding that balance, um, some companies I've been with have been, it's all core SRE work. Some companies I've been with is everybody is embedded. And I, no one that I've really worked with has found that balance well. Yeah, that's an amazing question. Um, so in the in the initial in the initial stage when I was launching SRE at Acquia, I had the operations team to rely on. So they were still keeping the lights on in terms of the flagship product, right? So that that remained. But what SRE was doing was going into the engineering groups and then you know improving their processes, which would benefit operations in the in the, in the medium to long term because. You know, engineer, engineering is now an active participant in the reliability of the system rather than relying on ops to do everything. Um, but I, I think that there's also like a natural evolution that happens when you're doing this type of work. Like the first issue is okay, I have a bunch of engineering teams and they need to be introduced to the idea that, hey, I'm on call. Um, I, my processes need to be repeatable and ideally scripted and really ideally automated. Um, I need to know the effects of my changes on production. Like, so that's a cultural shift. So it takes a while to get, you know, sweet into the fold in terms of the idea that, yes, I am responsible for, for production service and I, I have a privilege uh, to run it, as charity majors would say, and I, therefore I'm going to be on call for it. So like, that's step one. But once the team, the teams are like, you know, um, on board to that sort of thing, I, I I think that the the latter step, the next step, is okay. Now you need to build and operate a a a platform that basically codifies the rules that the organization has developed, you know, throughout you know SREs joining on joining on teams, and that's precisely what happened to Acquia after I left. Uh, my successor um, went and built. I guess like a proto platform engineering team. They built a CI CD pipeline, they implemented GitOps, and they started onboarding engineering teams into using it. And the benefit of that was was okay, these teams already understand the value of doing the ops. Well now it's in code. And if they're following the rules of how to use the system, then all of those non functional requirements they had to do on their own, then I'll get for free. Did you ever get pushback from the operations teams for this? That's a really good question. I think I think there was some natural there was some natural tension. Um and what I mean by tension is is that I was introducing a very new idea to how ops is done. Right? Like when we think about IT operations, we're thinking, okay, we have infrastructure responsible for it, we're doing the change management for it, we're monitoring and and, and, and alerting on it and responding to incidents. Where in SRE land, we're saying, no, we are 
that that is part of the gig, sure, but we're automating away the necessity of needing to do that through code. Um, right? As Ben Trainer from Google, you know, said, SRE is what happens when um you ask a software engineer to design an operations team. So like I think there is kind of this existential crisis that I inadvertently created by saying, okay, we're going to, you know, run services in this fashion. Well, what, what, it, what is the, what is the end stage prognosis for folks that, you know, are still doing sysip and work. And I, I think that was happening under the surface, you know, between me and, and my former ops team, you know, after I left and, and started this. And I, I think, I think it's totally natural. It's just, it's just the, the transition between, you know, phases of the technology and process that we use to automate and uh, operate stuff. A year or two before the DevOps term became popular and the Phoenix Project book came out, I remember having a conversation with folks at work about, hey, all the, the systems engineers and systems programmers and whatever else who are in the operations teams, we need to be focusing more on doing more programming work, more more of that core automation work, because that is what keeps us an interesting work and not just being like tier four help desk and a surprising number of people push back against that. We're like, no, that's not never, I'm not, I'm not a software engineer. I'm never going to do that work. And I'm like, but that's the future of the career. <laughs> and it always blew my mind that they didn't want to. Yeah. But an interesting, interesting point. Isn't that the past though, too? Like when, when people were responsible for operating Unix systems, Weren't they writing code and, you know, building scripts and having to understand things like syscalls yes. in order to keep the system running? In the yes. beginning. Right. But when you're doing like fleet management for, you know, well, not fleet management for Linux machines, because that actually takes a bunch of, a bunch of. It's just installing RPMs nowadays. Come on. Yeah. But, but a lot of people didn't want to get past that. They didn't want to get past the view of the system from package management and dependency management and, oh, there's security fixes and there's. Like, no, there's there's a lot more here. And that's where the interesting work is going. And so if you want to stay on the interesting side of things, go with it. And they didn't want to. And I'm like, okay, well, I, okay. Yeah, I, I think you made a very clear explanation as to something I was alluding to and, and probably being a little diplomatic about, um, which is, yes, in order to remain... Um, I don't know if the term is relevant, but in order to remain in a position where the market wants to procure your services as an employee, uh, software development is 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 the means for you to be able to do that. I, I've actually um, I am active a little bit on Reddit um, in the SRE group to like answer questions and contribute to the conversation, and I have noticed um, that a lot of SRE roles like people that are SREs aren't writing code. Um, and when I've, you know, stated that rule number one of the SRE practices that Ben Trainer introduced at the Usenix conference in 2014, number one was hire only coders. That rubs people the wrong way. Um, and, and yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to gatekeep, but what I am saying is like, if you're doing site reliability engineering, one of the major processes of that is toil management. You manage toil, which is, you know, the, the automatable, repeatable, non-value add activities and operating a service. You manage it through automation. 
you automate using code. Like this is, this is the core of what, you know, SREs do. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting getting into conversations and sometimes lightweight debates with people about this, about the subject of having to write code as part of the gig. Yeah. To, to me, this is the, this is the fundamental part of what has been referred to many times as like the DevOps transition or the, how do we, you know, bring our com- company into the future? It's like a big chunk of it is if you are a technology company and you are not doing these kinds of things, this is the path forward. It may not be the only path, but this is the one that most people know right now and look at it and try to understand why other people, it's worked for them. Yeah, I think we mentioned this earlier before we started this call or started this recording. Um, there's this transition between you know, running Kickstart uh, and and then running Puppet and then using VMs, I think I think like the the logical conclusion is that yes, you are writing code uh, to conjure up and manage your infrastructure as opposed to doing it by hand, and it, it makes total sense. Like teams are running, you know, um, clusters that are as large as university supercomputers once were. <laughs> you know, like ten years ago, I I was running a cluster. Um, of like 300-ish machines. And I remember when I was proud to run 300 machines. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, you know, it, it fit in one or two data centers and you're walking around and wondering if the Halon's going to go off and, you know, you have oh, a cold Oh, those are the, the days. Aisle. Yeah. Don't dump the Halon. Don't dump the Halon. Don't dump the Halon. You, you got it. But, like, we're no longer in that, in that place anymore. So, yeah, we have to learn how to write code. That there, there's just no, there's just no avoiding this fact. And a lot of the SRE organizations that I've gotten familiar with are really kind of SRE name only. It's not always a code writing position. They may give you a code interview, but when you get down the nitty gritty, it's you know fill out some YAML and you know try to keep some team in line. And that's and that's not what SRE is supposed to be. But that's that's kind of the common adoption that I think we're all trying to to put a stick in the ground and say, you know, this this is what SRE is. If you're not in toil management, if you're not making your lives faster and easier. A hundred percent. I think the same can be said for the DevOps, you know, industry, if I can call that an actual term. Um, the, the term DevOps and the term SRE, I think, has is so much open to interpretation that um, when I when I talk to folks that are interested in an SRE role, uh, one of the advice I give them is to be very careful um, about, you know, checking out the job description. And when you're in the interview, actually ask like what the real responsibilities are. Because what I think is happening a lot is that, yeah, you're getting the fancy SRE title, but what you're actually doing is ops. And that's, that that's unfortunate because they're uh, like for myself when I was you know interviewing for 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 a company you know a few months back because they were interested and I wanted to see if they would if I could consult for them you know when I asked them what their what the actual day to day work was it was run this Kubernetes cluster and answer uh, customer support tickets that's not SRE folks um, so needless to say I offered them my my consulting uh, uh, services but I did not consider applying for 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 them <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, well, I've also noticed that DevOps is shifting to largely be 
senior ops people who can do some automation and scripting rather than being devs who are coming into it to fix the issues of toil and the, the burden of operational management of things. And I think it's easier to hire ops than it is to hire devs, honestly. But yeah, the point of the movement, the point of the transition was to bring the two groups closer together and learn from each other. And it seems that we're not really doing that. Yeah, the point of the of the work is to break down silos. And it's really common to, to see those same silos existing just called different things now. If breaking down silos was easy, uh, Amin wouldn't be making, wouldn't have a job as a consultant. It, it, I mean, yeah, I, I think this is a natural, a natural point to, to segue into the transformation and what it took. Um, right. So I, I was in the very interesting position of, of starting and running the DevOps transformation at Acquia from 2016 to 2019. Um, and let me tell you something. A lot of the work that I did during that time, like there were a few moments where I wrote code and the effects were profound, but most of my work was talking to people, building strategy, understanding incentives, and communicating a vision and a strategy, getting uh, buy-in from the executive team so that way everyone's moving forward and, you know, adopting the necessary changes to, to, to you know, get through the challenge of, of scale, uh, right? Because they were so successful in terms of acquiring customers that, you know, something's going to give with the current way they were, they, were, they were doing operations and the way that engineering was, was, was collaborating with the rest of the business. Um, but yeah, like most of the work was talking. It wasn't. It wasn't technical. Um, and I think that is a really, really hard thing to say to a lot of folks. Oh yeah, just go hire a bunch of quote unquote DevOps engineers and they'll sprinkle, you know, the AWS and the and the uh, you know configuration as code and everything gets better. No. How do you change culture? Uh so I'm I'm talking about change I'm not talking about change management in terms of infrastructure and releasing code. I'm talking about change leadership in terms of like changing the hearts and minds of the people that you work with to move in a direction that is better than where you are right now. That is a hard job. It's a really hard job. And I have seen it done badly a couple of times and I've seen it done well once or twice. So it's, it's a challenging shift to get people to make in part because you have to be a salesperson. Um, yeah. I joke that the difference between a junior engineer and a senior engineer is the senior engineers learn politics as well. Because you have to be able to navigate, you know, the executives, you have to be able to navigate getting buy-in from the other team that's also resource-strapped. And they're like, I don't have time to help. Yeah. Hang on. Right. Help us with this. Two months from now, like a quarter of your tickets go away. And then you actually have time. They're like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Now, now you're talking. And yeah. Even it gets people moving, but it's hard. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, really hard. I have a, an, a, an interesting story that I tell a lot of people um, about like a really, a really funny moment when I was doing the, the, this DevOps work. So when I was on, the, on this operations team, um, at the time I was responsible for managing the work in progress and I learned about Kanban and I'm like, all right, we're going to make our work visible. We're going to generate metrics on lead time of our tickets and we're going to burn stuff down. 
Um, the problem was we were getting so much incidents and unplanned work that the amount of tickets that the team could complete was very limited. And there was this perception by all of the stakeholders that depended on ops to do things. Um, each stakeholder thought that ops was their own dedicated team. Mm-hmm. They did not understand that they were a customer among many other customers. So like, you know, support needs ops to do, you know, infrastructure troubleshooting when a site is not performing well. You know, sales needs them to, to spin up new customers. Account management needs them the capacity plan for renewals, right? And so all of these teams, I had to go and break the news to all of them, all, all of like the, the stakeholders from each of those teams in a room saying, look, I can only do 20 tickets a day. And the reason why I can only do 20 tickets a day is because we're on fire over here with, with, with this on call. And this means that we as a, as a group need to decide what the 20 tickets are going to be. And that, the, the initial response from those people, you know, as the truth, you know, was laid Gone bare to them. them. It, was, it, was, it was very emotional for them. It was very difficult. Um, and I think, you know, after a week, things got better. But, but it, was, it, was, it was a tough moment for me personally, professionally, to be in that position but that was the beginning of creating empathy among the teams like, oh, right. I'm not the, necessarily the most important fish in the pond here. Like I need to be able to, you know, sell and bring in revenue. I need to be able to renew and keep the revenue g- going. I need to meet customers' needs when they're dealing with problems so that they will renew. Like, it's it's interrelated and we need to talk and we need to build empathy and that um and yeah that was that was a very interesting experience for me but it, it really uh was a huge object lesson around incentives you know everybody is thinking about what do they need to do in order to get you know promoted or their bonus or whatever um and the moment that you start opening people's minds up to the fact that it isn't just you and your incentive you can help people out towards their incentives and then they can enable yours behavior began to shift. There was a lot more collaboration and cooperation. Once we started to, you know, see the forest, not just the trees. I'm glad you were able to pull it off because that is a hard shift to get. Yeah, it was. Thank you. Yeah, that was, that was pretty, that was pretty wild. And it took, you know, the thing is it's a multi-year process. Like I don't want people to think that, you know, someone can just, uh, implement DevOps in, in, in six months. It's like, no, you, you need, you need C level buy-in and you need to sustain that buy-in long enough for the, for the culture to change. There's a great book that I recommend people read called leading change by John Cotter. Um, he's a professor emeritus at MIT. Uh, and he also runs his own consulting firm. And one of the number one things that, he says stops change from happening in an organization is a lack of a sense of urgency. So it's like, it's a massive challenge to have everybody that you need to work with seeing that, Hey, there is a problem and I need to be involved in doing it. And I need to get my team involved in doing it. That, that is a, a, a continuous and sustained effort that you have to place in order for that to happen. Otherwise you aren't, you aren't going to have people moving in the same direction. Well, it's that old quote about it's difficult to get someone to, it's difficult to get someone to understand something whose job depends on them not understanding it. So if people are entrenched... Upton Sinclair. Yeah. If people are entrenched in old patterns or old habits are like, hey, we've always done it this way, and I'm five years from retirement. I don't want to change things now. 
you have to break those walls down. You really have to. A hundred percent. A hundred, a hundred percent. Um, and yeah, again, it's a, it's a multi-year process. I think, I think one of the biggest examples that I had around that, um, was between the operations team and, and support and, and I, I get, I get where support is coming from. So just to give, give you an example of what their experience is, you know, they're taking in tickets from customers and the priority and urgency of these tickets can range from, Hey, if you get take a look, get around to it. And Hey, my site is down right now and I need some help. So with that level of urgency and the job is hard, it's very easy for them to say, Oh, well the ops team, these guys are, you know, Linux magicians. I'll, I will go and pass the ticket to them and they can go fix it. But the problem is there's only so many ops people. Um, and it's very easy to saturate that resource and then, and then you're stuck. So it, it, it took some, some time and effort for me to build relationships with them and give them tools and enablement and say, I, I know I'm asking you to do something different, but if you are doing the different thing, you're going to get better, you know, throughput out of us because, you know, you've, you've used tool, you use tools that we have made available for you. You provided some context to make it easier for us to diagnose and troubleshoot. Right. So like. I think it, I think it goes back to the incentives. Like, yeah, you know, it's easier to just escalate the ticket, but it's even better if you like do something that makes it easier for us to action it. Yeah. A minute ago, you were talking about toil for the on-call folks and right. early in my career, I was working at universities and I would get messages from like somebody in the department somewhere saying, mm-hmm. uh, the, the chair's email doesn't work. And I'm like, well, I don't know who you are. I don't know who the chair is. I don't know what the part, I don't know anything. Like, give me something to start with. Like, yeah, I am the senior engineer running the mail system, but I, I'm i not a wizard. Like, I need I need something. I need context here. And requests that came in that were very focused and very specific, I did them immediately because it took me two minutes instead of 20. And that that reduction in toil is something that everybody should be trying to focus on. It doesn't matter if you're in you know, support or billing or whatever. But I mean, even other like software engineers that I've worked with, when you give, when you ask a well-researched question and you say, hey, I looked at these four things and they didn't work for me. And the documentation here is not clear and the tool doesn't work. And the error I'm getting is this. That's like, oh, well, I could actually help you with that because you've given me enough context to know what path you've already been going down versus the, how do I food? And you're like, um, what no, do you- I got one last week. My Lambda doesn't, doesn't work for me. Do you know why? No right. shit. That was the entire message. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, it got ignored. I, yeah, I, I resonate so much with this because this is, this is precisely, you know, what it is I'm, I'm, I'm talking about um, where it, there is a free form, you know, means to reach out to a team. You know, usually it's in the form of a ticket or an email or something. Um, and I actually spent a lot of time tackling this problem. And um, the way that I addressed it was I built a web app. I designed a web app called Ops Portal. And it used JSON schema. So each each issue type, you know, here's the menu of all the things that someone could ask us to do. And we created in JSON a definition of the work, what the request is. And you pick the item and you fill out the form because JSON schema allows you to um, 
you know, to find like a, like a, a format that can, that can then be rendered into an HTML form. They fill out the form, they submit it. And then what happens is that you have this team with all of the context they need to get the, get the task done because you, you've, you've cut out the, the back and forth negotiation, you know, like yeah. the three-way TCP handshake of ticket submission, which is like, oh, uh, I see that your Lambda function isn't working. Well, what ADBIS account is it? What region is it? What is the function name? What does it mean to not be working? Right? Um, so like the way we addressed it is we've enumerated all the, the most common things that people needed. And then we just codified it and required people to answer the common questions that we would ask every time there would be, you know, a, 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 a request of that type. It cut lead time for tickets by half. The most successful organizations I have ever really been in had a tool like that, had some sort of portal that you could find the tools you wanted to execute. You could find the tickets you wanted to file, but had some sort of tool like that. And very few organizations do. It's a lot of friction. I mean, you don't like, you have to get people to buy into the idea of again, following the rules. Um, You know, and like when I, when I introduced this portal to, tool to folks, you know, there were some people that were like, oh crap, I can just do this. And then the ticket gets done within a day. This is awesome. But then there were folks that were really like upset and saying, oh man, this team is making us do this protocol and I don't like it. And I'd, I'd rather just call them. And I mean, there's always going to be folks like that, but yeah, you, you are in sales when you're doing work like this for sure. And one of the things that has really struck me about our conversation is is how much we keep kind of bouncing back to the idea of marketing, of how so much of the SRE journey is marketing and keeping that that priority pressure up and, you know, running those commercials constantly during, you know, what you're doing. And as well as running your own consulting firm and, and pushing out a good product, which is a skill that I've really been struggling with and trying to do some personal development then marketing's hard. I find it hard. It, it is hard. Um, it, 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 it is hard. I mean, also across all of the various means of communication. So I guess, I guess what you could say, um, what, what, what do I do most of the time for a living is I am a DevOps and SRE propagandist. Because it's like all of the various ways. <laughs> I mean, I am I am a propagandist, right? Like there, there, there's there's all there's all five senses. How am I how am I putting DevOps and SRE into all five of your senses so that you understand that this is something that is important for you as a you know C level executive, as a software engineer, as an engineering manager, you know, to adopt this stuff. Um, and yeah, I, I feel that my career since I, you know, took the, took the, this helm of, uh, as, a, as a DevOps and SRE practitioner, hundred percent, it's been marketing because here's the secret. Um, you are not going to get the job done by yourself. You are not going to change the culture by yourself. Um, you could introduce the most killer technology, but if no one uses it, it doesn't matter. So the, the key to any transformation is not just you jumping in, writing all the code and making it happen. It's, it's, it's you, you know, using your voice, your uh, goodwill that you've built on the team, um, your communication skills to convince others to do differently than where they are. 
And I would actually argue that if you bring in a new tool or a new development or you write all the code and nobody uses it, it's worse than you've done nothing. Because Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You've just wasted a lot of resources. Exactly. And now somebody somewhere will pick up part of that and have a dead project that they are holding on to and it will take many people many hours down the road to untangle that. So Yeah. Another another lost puppy. Yeah. If you don't get buy in from people that will take it seriously. And by people, I'm talking about CTO, CFO, like the people who can change the direction of technology, the people who can open the wallet and say, yes, we're spent, we're spending on this. You're going to have a rough time of it. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. I, any, any listener out there, like the, the, the number one thing you're going to want to have when driving organizational change on your team or your department or across the company is that C-level has to buy into what you're doing. If you do not have that, you're going to have a really bad time. Um, there's only so much that you can do grassroots. Like you could do quite a little bit grassroots, but when you need, you know, for example, um, you need to be able to adopt a, a, a third-party time series or observability system, and it requires a contract, and you have to spend a lot of money. You're going to be able to. You're going to have to convince the person with the purse strings to put down that cash, right? You're not going to be able to do observability without a system that stores your data. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an unavoidable fact. Amen, why don't you give us another summary plug about your company? And sure. then, then we'll wrap up. Uh, again, I'm Amin Astani. I run a consultancy called Cherto Moto, uh, based out in Boston. Um, I help tech companies transform the reliability posture using DevOps and SRE best practices. I've been leading uh, transformation um, since 2016. So again, I'm taking all of that experience and lending it to any tech company that wants it. So I'm here and available. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Amin Astani. Thanks, and good night. How many DevOps can we hire today? <laughs>